This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. This is NCD Chronicles, a series where we go beyond the disease diagnosis to look at the lived experiences and real challenges faced by people who have non-communicable diseases. In conjunction with Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which is observed annually in October, this episode is brought to you by Novartis Malaysia, reimagining medicine to help improve and extend lives of over 32 million Malaysians. Cancer is a word often still whispered quietly under your breath when you hear of someone you know being diagnosed, as if it's something to be feared, something too taboo to talk about aloud. And if it were advanced cancer, also known as metastatic cancer, where it has spread to other parts of the body, what comes to mind is that it's incurable and that death is on the doorstep. But in the last decade, we've seen that a good quality of life for women with advanced breast cancer is possible for months and years following a diagnosis. So on today's show, we'll be hearing from Grace Tam on how living with advanced breast cancer has not and will not stop her from living her life to the fullest. Hello everybody, I am Grace. Um, I'm 46 this year. I work um, full-time in an international uh, charity doing fundraising and building strategic partnerships to enable us to offer programs um, that can empower girls and young women worldwide. Grace works with the World Association of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts and through her work, it has helped her reflect upon her own cancer diagnosis. Well, we have uh, lots of programs uh, on leadership, building skills, Mm -hmm. helping young women to take action in their local communities. So there are like lots of advocacy programs, um, things that um, support the young women to grow in life Mm -hmm. and take charge of their own life and um, chart their own paths. So for example, learning how to use the internet safely, taking action on climate change, reducing uh, single-use plastics, um, as well as now we are exploring on uh, STEM, which is science, technology, engineering and maths, because our global consultation last year showed that um, lots of young women worldwide, um, they want to do it, but they lack the support um, from the people around them and also the resources um, to go ahead. So it also helps me... uh, reflect a lot, you know, um, in, in, in my life, in my daily life, with me being um, diagnosed with cancer. And um, I realised, uh, for example, this STEM, mm-hmm. it is very, very much needed. Um, I am still alive today because of STEM, because of the advanced uh, scientific research done by the companies which produce the different uh, medication and treatment um, options for patients. And I'm really lucky to be on um, this treatment, which allows me to still work as normal. In fact, I returned to work three months only after I was diagnosed uh, with the stage four cancer. Now, Grace makes it sound so straightforward, but how she received her diagnosis was actually quite the whirlwind. She had initially gone in to see the doctor for an issue which seemed utterly unrelated. It was April 20. 21. That weekend, I had a 
very hectic weekend because um, we have a global event uh, happening virtually and it was during the pandemic, right? So everything were virtual. And then um, I felt like my neck was very painful. I thought um, probably long hours and it's probably normal, um, just neck pain or back pain, which is quite normal for people about 40 years old. Um, I did have the back pain and neck pain milder um, in, in like the month before. Um, but I thought, you know, probably just tired or overworked or something. Then after after a few days, I felt like um, I couldn't even lift my neck from the bed. Like my neck is about to break if I, if I come out from bed. It was so painful. And I couldn't work anymore. I, I, I just need to sit down at a correct position so that, you know, my neck is not painful. Then I decided to go to the hospital, made an appointment. I called the general line and they said, oh, you need to see a neurologist. Okay. So I went and then um, the doctor said, oh, um, I'm not the correct uh, person for you to see. I will recommend you to a spine doctor. Um, but he ordered an X-ray for me anyway. Mm-hmm. So he said there's a fracture in the neck bone, which I thought was part of um, an accident that I had three years ago in 2018. Then the next day when I went to see the spine doctor, um, immediately after he looked at the X-ray, he said something was eating my bones. And then he looked at the breast and he suspect it is a breast cancer. And when he touched, uh, he almost could confirm that it it is cancer. I think the whole thing takes about like 24 to 48 hours only. So I, I would say that I'm very lucky because I met the right doctors who know what's happening. And that's why with immediate attention to it, um, my life could be saved. If probably waited another while or having wrong diagnosis or whatever, the cancer may burst anytime because it was a very huge 17 cm. And the neck may have collapsed because already eaten two-thirds of the the bone. We've come a long way with public awareness on breast cancer. Most of us are no stranger to the campaigns that ramp up in the month of October. More of us are used to hearing celebrities sharing their own experiences with breast cancer or even people in our family, in our community. And yet, many women in Malaysia are still being diagnosed with advanced breast cancer. Why? Here's what consultant clinical oncologist Dr. Jennifer Leong has to say. So in Malaysia... The data from National Cancer Registry shows that up to 60% of women are still being diagnosed at locally advanced or advanced breast cancer, which means that 60% of women are still presenting at stage 3 or stage 4 cancer, which Mm. tells us that only 40% are presenting at an early stage of 1 and 2. We know that there are more campaigns um, to increase awareness uh, in terms of detection, early detection of breast cancer in the last decade. But why are women still presenting at late stage? I think predominantly there is still a lack of awareness in perhaps a certain population of women where they felt that if they uh, have a lump that is painless, it's not something that's worrying. And we know that most of the malignant lumps are painless to begin with. So it's only when the symptoms become a bit more apparent, for example, nipple bleeding, 
or when the lump starts to have pain, they actually have pain in the breast lump, then that's when you they, they will start to um, uh, seek consultation or medical advice. So apart from that, I think also the stigma of knowing that this is likely a cancer and also the stigma of perhaps needing to undergo certain treatment such as chemotherapy may deter some women from presenting early. I'd rather not know early until if I really have to and usually it'll be a family member or a loved one that then urge them to see a doctor but by then they would likely be symptomatic. What difference does it make when breast cancer is diagnosed early? Even with advances in treatment for advanced breast cancer, Dr. Jennifer highlights that early detection still offers the best outcomes for patients. This is never an easy uh, aspect for us as oncologists, even after many years of being in the practice. I think one of the hardest things I will have to do is to break the cancer diagnosis, or we say break bad news to the patient and often the family members as well. So I think it's important, firstly, as an oncologist, for me to build a good rapport with the patient. And this is from the early onset, even the first consultation itself. I think it's important for patient and family to trust you. Yeah, with the decision that they are going to make. So once you have built the rapport and you break down the barrier yeah, of fear, and then I often talk to them about the rationale of treatment and the treatment intent. In some very early stage breast cancer, the intent is curative. So, But in someone who has advanced cancer or someone who has stage 4 cancer, we really very much looked into treatment to improve their symptom control yeah, and to improve their survival. But often, the intent is no longer curative. So I think it's important to highlight this and then moving from there to talk about the goals of the treatment. So you will hear doctors mentioning about prognosis a lot. And essentially, prognosis means the general outlook of the disease. And often, when we talk about prognosis, we link it to um, survival rate. So doctors may be using words like five-year survival rate. So in breast cancer, if a, a lady or a woman is uh, diagnosed with stage 1 breast cancer, their five-year overall survival is up to 90 to 95%, which translates to 1 in 10 women may develop a disease recurrence in five years. But 9 or 10 women would have essentially been cured. So this is a very good um, prognosis, we say. So unfortunately, if a woman presents with stage 4 disease, their five-year survival rate dipped to as low as 20%, which translates to 8 out of 10 women will not have made it in 5 years. Hence, we always emphasise on early detection because early detection really improves their prognosis and it saves life. In Grace's case, from the moment the doctor suspected it was breast cancer, she was quickly admitted into hospital and put on treatment, both to manage the symptoms that she was experiencing as well as to halt the progress of the cancer. So then... I called my insurance agent. She said, go ahead, just go ahead um, and, and do it. It's urgent and immediately I was admitted to the hospital. Um, the doctor ordered some tests and then um, passed me on to oncologist. And um, there was a whole team of doctors, spine doctor. I was also diagnosed with uh, diabetes. At that time, I was quite high, um, 17. The, the, the reading was 17. I didn't even know, right? Um, I, I didn't have... I didn't realise I have these problems uh, earlier. So then there were like few doctors coming to see me in turns and uh, doing lots of tests, MRI, CT scan, uh, PET scan, everything done, right? But blood tests um, to confirm 
uh, what is happening. And then the immediate thing was to address the neck because it's preventing me to do a lot of things like I can't even move or have shower without pain. Mm. It was so painful. I can't even sit up and eat. <laughs> so the spine doctor did a surgery for me and put like eight screws in the neck. So now I cannot turn left and right. <laughs> left, barely five degrees left and right. Um, and that's why I, I'm, I'm wearing the neck brace uh, when I go out to avoid the trauma. After the surgery was done, the oncologist came with um, the plan of how she thinks the, my, my cancer can be managed. So it is a targeted therapy where I only need to take uh, tablets on a daily basis and uh, every month I need to take two injections uh, one is for the hormone and then the other one um, is for the bones yeah, I started on this treatment then and until now I'm still on the, the same treatment uh, there is no big adverse effect so I hope that I can continue on this medicine and very, very luckily that there is a program for the patients who are on this medicine where after a certain number of uh, boxes purchased, uh, we can be take the medicine free for life. Um, which is really helpful to patients because I, I think obviously many people would know that cancer treatment is very expensive without the insurance. Insurance also probably can't cover the entire life, um, but with this kind of... Uh, Patient assistance programs, I think uh, they're really helpful. Actually, right, I didn't have time to really think and worry about many things because um, everything was like a whirlwind. So fast, uh, diagnosis, admit, do tests, uh, doctors come and tell you what to do. Um, no, I don't. I didn't have time to think and worry about it. My only focus was listen to the doctors uh, they have a plan let's just follow the plan because there is nothing I can do I'm not an expert I don't see there's another way that uh, I mean I, I I can do to to you know address all these issues especially the neck there's no way mm. <laughs> no diet or supplement or herb or anything that can help to uh, mitigate that issue at that time yeah after the break, we'll hear more from Grace about what a good quality of life means to her and how she manages the ups and downs of living with advanced breast cancer. This is NCD Chronicles, our series that goes behind the diagnosis of non-communicable diseases. Stay tuned to Health & Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. You're listening to an episode of NCD Chronicles, spotlighting what it means to live with advanced breast cancer. Now, for a long time, the standard of care for most cancers involved either surgery, chemotherapy, or radiotherapy, or some combination of all three. With advanced cancers, options are often more limited because of how the disease has spread. However, with newer forms of treatment for advanced breast cancer in particular, this has translated into better outcomes for patients, as explained here by Dr. Jennifer. It has been a very interesting few years in oncology, especially for women with advanced breast cancer. In the past, when a woman is diagnosed with advanced breast cancer, 
almost always the standard of care will be systemic chemotherapy. But we know systemic chemotherapy, even the word of it, uh, puts off a lot of uh, patients because we know it's often associated with side effects, mm. especially on loss of hair because we know that impacts on their image, uh, let alone acute side effects such as uh, nausea and vomiting, and some of them uh, can't even sleep at night. So at this point of time, we actually can recommend a systemic treatment that differs from chemotherapy, such as oral targeted therapy in combination with hormonal therapy for a subgroup of women who has hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. I know this sounds a lot, but this is where you speak to your oncologist to ask them about the subtype of the breast cancer that you're having. So every woman who is diagnosed with breast cancer will have their molecular profiling done, such as estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2 receptor. This gives us a better idea on the molecular subtype of breast cancer. And so if the woman has a hormone receptor positive breast cancer and it's HER2 negative, and they are not in organ imminent organ failure, we can actually provide them this oral targeted therapy with hormonal therapy that can significantly improve their outcome and minimizing side effects at the same time. We know systemic chemotherapy has been doing very well in the past. What it does, it kills off cancer cells, but some cancer cells um, still remain resistant to systemic chemotherapy. So when it comes to this novel targeted therapy, they work at the molecular level to target the cell cycle of the cancer cell. So really, we are retarding the cancer cell at the cell cycle level. So this is a, a real advancement, I say, in science. So firstly, in terms of the clinical data where these uh, uh, treatment drugs are experimented on, it has shown that women actually have a longer prolongation of symptom-free interval. So double the, the time for them to develop symptoms from their cancer progression compared to hormonal therapy alone. And secondly, more of them are actually having better quality of life. So there's preservation quality of life allowing them to actually continue to do what they have been doing before their cancer treatment is diagnosed. And more importantly, this new novel agent has improved survival outcome. And essentially, that is what we want in all our patients, for them to be able to have a good quality of life and yet able to prolong it their life while they're on treatment. So what does a good quality of life mean from both a patient's and a physician's perspective? So I think... When we talk about quality of life, well, I I wouldn't say like I have like high hopes or high ambitions of doing whatever. What I want to do is I I can do things that I like. Uh, I can continue to work. I can continue to meet friends, uh, contribute to my family, and do things that make an impact in society. Mm. So, um, in other words, my work is also. Um, creating impact in society. But I, on top of that, I also volunteer um, to work with local group of uh, girl guides. We have a community group here in uh, Pataling. Mm. So uh, we we do programs also for local girls. Uh, I support my friends uh, who are in the same group. Um, although I probably can't be at every activity, but I can support by um, you know, doing the paperwork, um, doing things that I can do. So... My take is do things at my pace uh, and when I can contribute, I contribute. Uh, every little contribution is a contribution. It is 
not measurable, you know, volunteering time cannot be valued with money. Mm. Even contributing an idea is a contribution because we we wouldn't know whether our idea is the one that sparked off a big thing. The patient's autonomy is very important. So I often incorporate almost every patient. We talk about um, decision-making, shared decision-making. So this is where uh, my role as an oncologist is to give them some perspective on what is the best treatment that's available currently based on guidelines. And also, of course, we balance that with what the patient's wish is. So that comes into context uh, uh, aspects like uh, side effects, toxicity, whether they'll still be able to function or work. So these are all very important aspects. But most importantly, the aim of the treatment would be to prolong survival and at the same time minimise toxicity that can arise from the treatment. So essentially, someone with advanced breast cancer, we would want to maintain their quality of life. So it's not just about controlling the symptoms, controlling the cancer, but yet they have a poor quality of life and that doesn't give a good life balance. For me, someone, a patient who has good quality of life would be someone who are still able to resume their daily activities. A lot of these patients, uh, a lot of these women still has work and young family to attend to. So I would want treatment that doesn't impact on this outcome. So they are still able to resume their work, have financial independence, travel, mm. and not being labelled as a cancer patient, which mm. is a huge stigma to patients. They are still human. And I think as an oncologist, it's so important for us not to treat patients as a disease, but to see them as a human with various risk factors and various factors that take into account before we actually decide on your treatment. That said, Dr Jennifer also highlights that having treatment is one thing, but whether patients can access it is a separate concern. The challenges remain in providing access to the treatment, the best treatment, and often it is cost-related. So patients who may not have insurance and self-funding may find it very difficult to sustain themselves on the best treatment out there. And secondly, it's also to convince physicians that this is the right treatment. That when a patient is not in a visceral crisis, which is another term for imminent organ failure, then systemic chemotherapy may not be the only option for this patient. So sometimes it's really to um, also convince our own fraternity that there are better treatment out there that can benefit patients. And I think in Malaysia, we still lack the accessibility for screening such as mammogram and ultrasound, um, breast in various parts of the rural area. So this is a resource issue that we should be tackling. Because if we cannot detect the cancer early, patient, if, if, if the Malaysians doesn't get access to all these uh, basic screening, then let alone we are able to detect the cancer early, right? So we always emphasize on early detection. Now, when we think of cancer treatment, what comes to mind is the myriad side effects that could come with these treatments. Grace has had her share of these, but throughout it all, she's also had a strong support network, both from healthcare professionals as well as her family. The side effects, um, the simple ones are dry skin, mm. getting more dehydrated, right? So to manage it, just drink a lot of water and nourishing uh, soups or, or liquids. Mm. Um, take a lot of fruits. I have a balanced diet. I think having a balanced diet is very important. Then the other ones, uh, of course, will be tired mm -hmm. sometimes. And because this treatment um, causes 
early menopause. I wasn't at men- menopause yet. So then, of course, I will have those menopause symptoms like hot flush, uh, sometimes very hot. And the other thing which is uh, discovered late last year, early this year, was I, I keep having lots of gastric issues. Mm. So I was referred to a gastro and um, the the doctor put me on a maintenance medicine to control the gastric because we are not stopping the cancer medicine, right? Mm. So what we can do is to manage and control the other issues. Um, the other thing was uh, after two months from the diagnosis, I did um, radiotherapy 10 times on the neck because uh, according to the oncologist, the the neck has been exposed. Um, that's why um, we needed to put the um, do the do the radiotherapy. But the side effect was after the radiotherapy finished, um, the following two weeks, my throat was um, quite damaged because there's heat, there's heat um, from the from the wavelengths. You just imagine um, it took me one hour to finish drinking one cup of water because it was too painful. But of course, uh, we are humans, right? We, are, we, we know how to survive um, and find ways to help us make our life more comfortable. Mm-hmm. So I tried different ways, uh, like firstly, swallowing the ice mm-hmm. to reduce the heat in the throat and then I can drink um, and eat some food, like more liquid food. And my mum... Uh, and my brother at that time, um, they were very supportive of me. When I was first diagnosed, uh, because of a neck issue, right, there's, there, there isn't much that I could do at home. I, I cannot drive. First thing is, cannot drive. And then I also cannot take things which are too heavy and I need to focus on recovery, right? So um, most of the things uh, that I usually do at home, I couldn't really do as well, um, like going shopping for groceries and so on. Yeah, so so they have to do more things at that point. And um, my brother also explored like planting different vegetables and herbs um, that could help. Um, that I could eat that can provide you know a better nourishment for me. And uh, my mum, she. She started by cooking different sets of meals for me and them. Uh, and that, that was very hard work for her. Um, the entire day she was in the kitchen. Yeah, so I'm really grateful. Being diagnosed with cancer isn't just about dealing with the medical side of things. For those who choose to share their diagnosis with others, people may say hurtful things, no matter their intentions. But sometimes those words also come from someone we least expect them to. For the well wishes, um, I, I think that they are all meaning well. Mm. Uh, first, there are many people who can off, who, who will offer things like um, you know this this recipe, or this supplement, or this herb, or whatever. But we must be very clear of ourselves. We also need to do a research, and read up about things, right? Um, to ensure that it's safe for us to consume, and most importantly, it doesn't interfere with the medical plan. Because some medicine um, can clash with certain things. 
if we didn't know and, and take it, it may pose a risk or, or disrupt the treatment plan. Mm. So we must be very careful and uh, able to, to synthesize the, the information and make the right decision for yourself. But talking about something that people shouldn't say to patients, I have a very interesting um, experience recently. I went back to my hometown, which is in Sabah, and there was one evening I didn't feel well. So we were at a restaurant and my mom said, um, let's go to the clinic, which is nearby. So we went. Um, I explained to the doctor what's, what's wrong with me at that time. I was like feverish, shivering, and um, generally not feeling well. And then... Um, because before I left for Sabah, I haven't, I haven't travelled for so many years after the since the pandemic and also since diagnosis, right? So I asked my oncologist to write me a letter to explain what situation I am, what medicine I'm on. Because I'm used to travelling um, for work. I, I, I will bring this kind of letters uh, in case you know anything happens in in an, another place. So the doctors they can immediately identify uh, what's wrong with me or what medicine that can, they cannot prescribe to me mm. in case it clashes with my medicine. So I showed the doctor the letter and I said, I'm also a stage 4 breast cancer patient. Must be honest, ma. <laughs> Must be honest to, to, to the doctor because otherwise we wouldn't get the, the right thing. So then he looked at me. <laughs> he said, um, there is nothing we can do for you here. It is a clinic GP, right? There's nothing we can do for you here. Um, do you know what is the outcome of stage 4 cancer? So I was a bit shocked. Um, I think it is totally unnecessary to say that. Uh, to me, it is also not very kind um, to a patient because we don't know what psychologically the patient is also facing at the same time. Even though, I mean, I, I was thinking, right, if um, I wasn't strong at that point, uh, what may have happened to me mm. or maybe some other people, if uh, the person wasn't affected so much by cancer, the person could have been affected by depression as well. Yeah, so I was thinking, you know, actually really more awareness should be done uh, not only to the general community, but also the medical community could also do more um, by upgrading themselves and um, learning how to communicate with patients. I think that's really important. I think cancer is still very much a taboo word in our community. And sadly, even among physicians who are not familiar with uh, treating cancer patients, their knowledge may be minimal. And uh, a lot of them would have the impression that, of course, it's with stage 4 cancer, it's incurable, and your time span or your survival is very limited. To an extent, it's, tr it's, it's a truth. But I think because the oncology world is changing so rapidly, so I think it's also important that as we create awareness for the public, we must also create awareness among our own physicians and colleagues. 
Hence, we often have uh, hospital CMEs and seminars, and we try to incorporate the other team to be involved because I think it's important because we may not be the first contact with the patient. The patient could be seeing a general practitioner first, and if already the patient uh, is not given the encouragement to step forward to get treatment, then we may lose the patient from the start. Coming to terms with a cancer diagnosis and learning what it means to live with advanced cancer also takes a toll on a patient's mental health. While awareness on mental health generally has increased, Dr. Jennifer feels that more can and needs to be done. Mental health um, is a really important aspect in all cancer patients. It is often overlooked, I think, because cancer takes priority and its treatment, and when you talk about side effects and treatment costs, often mental health becomes a second priority. But do you know that one in three patients who are diagnosed with cancer actually have a mental health problem ranging from anxiety to depression? Obviously, because there is a physical stress that comes with an advanced cancer, for example, pain, and let alone emotional stress as well and financial cost. So all this actually adds up to a, a, a mental problem. So I think as an oncologist, as a physician who are treating cancer patients, it's important for us not to overlook this problem because studies have shown that if you um, address the mental health issues early on, mm. this can actually improve the treatment outcome in terms of uh, compliance to treatment as well as um, Patients who have mental health issues tend to have more indifferent, indifference towards their treatment. Hearing Grace share her story, it's undeniable that she's an incredibly positive person and that she has taken much of her diagnosis, her treatment journey in stride. But that doesn't mean that it hasn't affected her mental health and it's something that she's open to talk about. I think everyone have good and bad days. Mm. Uh, and bad days could be very bad. The worst day was um, I committing suicide um, because I I thought that I am a burden to the people around me. Mm. Um, then I was referred to see a counsellor. Mm. So after several times with a counsellor, um, seeing a counsellor helped me by providing the safe space for me to talk about my problems. Mm. So once, you know, talk, we, I, I, I pull out what I wanted to, you know, what was uh, troubling me and everything. Maybe, you know, I can reflect and see, maybe it, I, can, I can handle this. Maybe after all, I can handle this, right? So it is okay. It is okay to, to, not, to not feel good all the time uh, it would be I would say very fake if <laughs> if I tell you everything is good right yeah it's been a journey of ups and downs but Grace is determined to do her part in breaking down the stigma and taboo surrounding cancer she continues to prove that being diagnosed with advanced breast cancer has not and will not stop her from living her life to the fullest I, I really believe that um to address an issue, we need to speak out about it. Mm. So, for example, to talk about um, to talk about cancer now, right? Maybe some people don't even dare to say out the word cancer. But if we are able to say out the word cancer or whatever other challenges, that means we are already 
have already taken the first step to face that challenge. So I like to be open um, because we wouldn't know um, when we may inspire or support someone. Um, and also sharing with people means that uh, other people will also may also share with you some of their experience that can help you or some of the uh, tips that can help you. So this is like, you know, mutual sharing and learning with each other, growing with each other. Yeah. So what keeps me going is I think that I can still contribute to the society, whether it's to my family or, or in my work or in my volunteering. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the work that I do, right, impact a lot of people. Especially with, um, with, with my portfolio now uh, involving in fundraising and getting um, new programs that can en enable more girls to get quality non-formal education, which can complement their formal education and also make them grow as a whole person. Mm -hmm. So I think that is very important because we are building um, the generations to come. Yeah, so that's, that's what keeps me going and looking at uh, how the girls are creating impact and inspiring others is also inspiring to me. Yes, I, I believe that um, we rise by lifting others. Well, I don't have big plans. Um, I think I, I may just uh, live and enjoy life as I could and... Uh, just follow my path, my pace. This has been NCD Chronicles, a series featuring the experiences and challenges of people with non-communicable diseases. This episode was brought to you by Novartis Malaysia, reimagining medicine to help improve and extend lives of over 32 million Malaysians. If you missed any part of today's show or any previous NCD Chronicles, you can listen to them on bfm.my or on our BFM app. I'm Lim Suan and you've been listening to Health and Living BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.